think it's rather fitting to be speaking inside of a building called Burden Hall. I definitely have a burden for these topics, that's for sure. Uh, what I wanted to do a little bit before we actually get into the meeting is just give you a quick overview about our ministry. I don't know how many of you are familiar with Whitehorse Media, but we have a website, whitehorsemedia.com. We picked the name White Horse because of Revelation chapter 19. It's actually a great name when you're talking to somebody that's not even a Christian and you tell them you work for White Horse Media. They say, well, why'd you pick that name? And we say, well, let me uh, tell you what it says in the book of Revelation chapter 19. You give a little little uh, study there. Anyway, uh, Revelation 19 describes Jesus coming on a white horse as the rider to uh, deliver his people at the end. And so we've just been inspired by that scene. So we picked the name White Horse Media because the word media implies reaching out through various ways, especially through the airwaves. And we have uh, a studio. We have a lot of television programs that we've produced. We've just moved our ministry out of uh, Fresno, California, over to Newport, Washington. I don't know how many of you have seen our programs on TV, on 3ABN. We're also on a Baptist channel called Faith Television. Get a lot of response from there. Uh, we have radio programs. We have DVDs, books. I give seminars, a lot of different things. Most of the material that we produce is designed to be shared with the, the larger world around us. Uh, we are evangelistic. We don't just want to talk to people in the church. We want to equip the saints to reach people outside the church. Uh, let me just quickly show you some of the books we have. And I think I dropped one of them. Can't seem to. Oh, here it is. Uh, these are just little small books to share with people solving the mystery of death. Great book dealing with the state of the dead and death and burial and resurrection. Uh, Perils of Talking to the Dead, a little book that deals with spiritualism and television and all the programs these days that are communicating the idea that we can talk to our dead loved ones. And this is a huge issue today, perfect little book to share. Then we have one on the millennium dealing with the thousand-year period and what happens at the end, uh, the hot topic of hell trying to expose the perversion of the character of God where people are taught that if you don't believe in Jesus, you're going to go down under the ground and you're going to burn forever and ever and ever and ever. Uh, this is a, just a good little book to share with that one. Another one called uh, Perils of Harry Potter and Witchcraft, dealing with the Potter phenomena and dealing with Wicca and the growth of witchcraft among teenagers. It's just a huge issue right now, and this is a very good little book. There's people inside the church, believe it or not, that are checking out Wicca and casting spells and getting into magic. And so we're dealing with that. We have another brand new little book called Discovering the Lost Sabbath Truth. Just a great little book to share with people about the Sabbath. It's very Christ-centered, very biblical. Old Testament, New Testament focuses on Jesus, how he's the Lord of the Sabbath and what the Sabbath is really all about. Uh, then another one, a brand new one that's just coming off the press in about a week called Decoding the Mark of the Beast. If you can, probably can't see this picture, there's a man looking up at his forehead where the numbers 666 are up there trying to figure out what is this subject all about. So this is also a really good book. The time is going to come, and I think we're not far away from it right now with what's going on in the world and the economy and just the whole global scene that we are going to find ourselves in the midst of the crisis. And these are just the kind of books that we need to be sharing with people, and so that's why we have them, uh, whitehorsemedia.com. We also have a little book called The Rapture Deception. We just got an email from a Baptist pastor who read this book and just was shocked by it. And then read another larger book called End Time Delusions, which 
has been published by Destiny Image by a uh, major Christian publisher. It's in bookstores across the country, all family Christian stores, and it's just amazing the responses that we're getting from things like this. And, so now, and then we also have the Character of God controversy. This is one of the only books that I've written in Dr. Lewis, and I co-authored this, dealing specifically more with things that are going on inside the church. Most of, like I said, goes outside, this is happening inside, and this is what I'm talking about here. Uh, we'll have a box of these books in the back at the end of the last program. We also have a newsletter, if anybody, I just got a few of these, I didn't bring a lot of things with me, but we have a few of these, if you'd like one, I can give one to you. Uh, we have, anybody see the Ultimate Passover on the Hope Channel, any of you watch that? It's a brand new 45-minute documentary that we just uh, produced and what well, actually was quite a while in, in the production and it just came out on December 13 on the Hope Channel, They've, they're going to be airing it for the next uh, two or three months. And it is designed to share Jesus Christ with Jewish people. My family's Jewish. Wahlberg is a Jewish name. My mother is in Palm Springs. I don't think she'll ever listen to this sermon. She's not going to go on audioverse.org and hear it, most likely. But I want to give her a copy of this DVD. It should be, should be printed or replicated in just the next few days. And it's just, it's a, like I said, a 45-minute documentary. Some of it was filmed actually in Egypt, in Israel. Um, showing some little boy watching his dad put blood on the doors and how that ultimately pointed forward to Jesus as the Messiah who would shed his blood on the cross for the sins of the world. It's designed to share Christ with Jewish people. That's why we did it. And then we have another, another one that's actually airing on 3ABN now. I don't know if any of you have watched it, but it's called uh, Islam Revisited. It's a 13-part series that deals with Muslim issues and it's really designed to try to break down prejudice and try to help us to reach out to a Muslim world. And there's over a billion Muslims in the world. So we're pretty excited that Whitehorse Media has a program to reach the Jews and a program to reach the Muslims. And many times they're at odds with each other, as you know, and we want to bring both groups to the foot of the cross to help them to see one savior who loves both groups, the descendants of Isaac and the descendants of Ishmael. He wants to bring them together uh, at the foot of the cross and save as many as possible. So if you have Muslim friends, you might be interested in that. If you have Jewish friends, you might be interested in that as well. Uh, as uh, somebody mentioned, we're going to take up an offering. I think it's at the beginning of the next meeting, right? Uh, the money does not go to me. It just goes to our ministry to help keep us going. We, uh, we have a building that we're just about getting ready to get into, and we have a lot of expenses. We're totally a faith ministry. Uh, I left, I pastored for many years, and finally the Lord just led me, step out in faith, go forward, and do this work full time. So I left pastoral ministry, and now this is all I do, is write and preach and teach, and we have TV equipment, and as long as God keeps us going... That's as long as we'll keep doing this. And hopefully um, the world won't be here much longer because Jesus will come. But that's what it's all about. So anyway, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to open up to the book of Matthew, chapter 26, verse 30. We're continuing our discussion, our study of the character of God, the character of God controversy that is going on right now, in the world and in our own church. The book is written in a very respectful way. 
We chose not to mention names, but the issues are very real. And many of you understand some of these issues, and Dr. Lewis and I have a burden to try to clarify uh, some of these issues as much as we can because we just think it's very, very important that we are not deceived by a subtle devil who is trying to pervert what the Bible says about who's up there. We need to know God as he is, as he is revealed in the Bible. I was thinking about this today over lunch, that spiritually speaking, this is not a time for veggie meat. Spiritually speaking, this is a time for meat. What do you say? And you know what I mean. The Bible talks about meat in due season. So this is the kind of meat we should be eating. Spiritual meat that really deals with the issues and that really helps us to get to know Jesus Christ. That's what it's all about. So let's bow our heads and let's pray and ask God to bless us. Who knows who will be listening to these recorded talks and I just want everything that's on them to be what the Lord wants to be on them and that he'll use them to touch as many people as possible, and you as well. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to be here in Loma Linda, and we just pray together as a group in the name of Jesus that the Holy Spirit will bless this talk. Please, Lord, I think of, of the promise in Matthew chapter 10, verse 20, where Jesus, where you said, it, it, is not, it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. And that is the promise that I trust in right now, that you will speak through me, through the Holy Spirit. Please bless all of us. Give us real spiritual meat, which is what we need in these last days. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, I want to read a quotation before we look at verse 30. We're going to come back to this quote. This is amazing. I don't remember exactly where I found this in a CD-ROM search or somewhere, but it's from the little devotional book called God's Amazing Grace. It's just a little devotional book written by Ellen White. And there's one sentence on page 168 that is just heart-rending. And it says here that no sorrow can bear any comparison with the sorrow of him upon whom the wrath of God fell with overwhelming force. Describing what happened in Gethsemane. And that's what we're going to be focusing on right now. The Garden of Gethsemane. Matthew chapter 26, verse 30. At the end of Jesus' little Passover meal with his disciples after he broke the bread and passed out the juice and then Judas went out and did his work of betrayal or was doing it, in verse 30, the Bible says that when they had sung a hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. So this was Jesus and now 11 of his disciples. Judas was gone. And they, are, they went down from the upper room and they meandered through the streets of Jerusalem uh, late on a Thursday evening and they were heading toward the Mount of Olives says in the Desire of Ages that it was a full moon that night. And as they went down a slope, they went out, one of the eastern gates of the city went down a slope, crossed the little creek, Kidron, 
and then began to hike up the mountain called the Mount of Olives, heading toward the Garden of, of uh, Gethsemane, we're told in the Desire of Ages that Jesus began to, to groan and moan and stagger and sway as he was getting closer to the garden. It says in the Desire of Ages, page 685, that as Jesus and his disciples approached the garden, the disciples marked the change that came over their master. Never before had they seen him so utterly sad and silent. As he proceeded, this strange sadness deepened, yet they dared not question him as to its cause. His form swayed as if he were about to fall. Every step that he now took was with labored effort. He groaned aloud as if suffering under the pressure of a terrible burden. There's that word burden. Think of burden hall. Here's a burden that Jesus is beginning to experience. It says, twice his companion supported him or he would have fallen to the earth. And that's amazing. Here, here Jesus is walking to the garden and he's, something is happening inside of him that is so intense that he starts to, to uh, sway and he would have just fallen down if his disciples hadn't held on to him. And when you continue to read about what was happening here, if God's angel didn't come and strengthen Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane, he would have died. He would have died right there. He never would have made it to the cross. What was going on? What was happening inside of the heart of Christ? In verse 31, as they were approaching the garden, the Bible says, Then saith Jesus unto them, to his disciples, All ye shall be offended because of me this night, for it is written, it is written, I will smite the shepherd. I will smite the shepherd. And the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. But after I am risen again, I will go before you into Galilee. Now, this is an amazing verse. Jesus is approaching the garden, and he's quoting a text. He said, it is written, I will smite the shepherd. Now, who knows if you have your margin, if your Bible has a little marginal reference, Seems like there's a dead spot here. Has anybody ever had this happen before? <laughs> no? <laughs> I've had a lot of strange things happen in my meetings sometimes. Uh, anyway, Jesus is quoting a verse. Does anybody know which verse he is quoting as he is describing what is about to happen to him? That's right. He is quoting a verse in Zechariah Chapter 13, verse 7. Now, it's interesting in the Desire of Ages, and the reason why I read Desire of Ages so much, uh, and I'm going to describe a little more about this later, uh, I am here today because the Holy Spirit used the book, The Desire of Ages, to change my life. Uh, and I'll tell you more about this in a, little, in a little while, but I knew nothing about God or Jesus or the Holy Spirit or the Bible for the first 20 years of my life. And through a whole series of amazing providential events, I got a hold. Somebody gave me a copy of The Desire of Ages when I was 20 years old, and I read that book. And what reached me more than anything else within that book was chapter 74 called Gethsemane. And it was a study of what happened to Jesus in the garden. That was what really got me. It just changed my life. And so that chapter means, means an awful lot to me. 
So here's another quote from that chapter on Gethsemane, the Desire of Ages, page 686. It says that Christ was now standing in a different attitude from which he had ever stood before. Something was happening to Jesus as he neared the garden that had never happened in his heart before. And then it says here that his suffering can best be described in the words of the prophet. And then it quotes Zechariah 13.7. Now when I read that, I thought, that's amazing. All the Bible verses that, that point forward to Jesus' suffering, his suffering is best described in one verse. Zechariah 13, 7. So let's go back to it and let's take a look at what that verse actually says. This is the verse that Jesus quoted. He picked that text to describe his sufferings. Zechariah is near the end of the Old Testament. It's right before Malachi. So if you go to the last book of the Old Testament and turn left, you will find it. Zechariah 13, 7. And Jesus just quoted a part of this verse, but we'll read the whole verse. What's the first word there? Awake. Right, powerful word. Awake, wake up. It just reminds me of uh, flying from Spokane to Palm Springs. Uh, said Thursday night. And when we finally got through our last leg, we went from Spokane to... Portland, and then stopped in San Francisco, put the pajamas on the kids, got them ready for bed, had worship on the plane, and then eventually headed toward Palm Springs Airport. And as we landed, I, I'm just, it's like yesterday, it was yesterday, two days ago, I, I remember looking at, on my lap, and here was little Seth, four years old, just totally out, just, and then over on my wife's lap, was little Abigail. She's one year old and she was just, so they both, they, you know, they look just like brother and sister. I mean, they look so much alike and they both slept with their little mouths open and they were out, totally out. But when the plane landed, it was time for them to awake. They had to get up. And as I just think about this world and about how the devil is trying to keep us asleep, this verse, this word impresses me. Awake. This is not a time for us to be sleeping, spiritually speaking. We need to be fully awake, fully alert. We need to be reading our Bibles. We need to be getting close to Jesus because things are going to happen fast. And if we think that we can wake up when things happen and when the final crisis hit, it's going to be too late to wake up. You know, we have to be awake now and preparing our hearts and our relationship with Jesus we need to be doing that now. Well, this verse talks about waking up, but it's a, it's a very unusual context. Verse 7 says, Awake, oh, and what's that next word? Oh, sword, against. Notice that word, against, my shepherd. And against the man that is my fellow, saith the Lord of hosts. Smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered, and I will turn my hand upon the little ones. This is a prophecy in Zechariah 13, 7, pointing forward to the suffering of God's own Son. Jesus quoted it, Matthew 26, 31. Desire of Ages says that this scripture best describes Christ's suffering, suffering and it's describing the awakening of a 
sword against him. Now, what is this talking about? When it says, awake, O sword, against my shepherd, is this a sword that was going to be unsheathed by a Roman hand? Is this talking about the Romans piercing Jesus? No. And when Jesus was quoting this text, at this time, there, there were no Romans around him anyway. Uh, no one had laid a hand on him yet. No human hand had been laid upon him. This is not a verse about the sword of the Romans. In the Desire of Ages, she comments upon this verse after describing that this best describes his suffering, quoting Zechariah 13, 7, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. And then this is what she says. As the substitute and surety for sinful man, Christ was suffering under divine justice. He saw what justice meant. Hitherto, he had been an intercessor for others, but now he longed to have an intercessor for himself. When you do a search in the CD-ROM under sword or sword of justice, you will find quotation after quotation after quotation describing that that was the sword that was unsheathed against Jesus Christ. It was not a Roman sword. It was the sword of justice. Here's just one from that same page in God's Amazing Grace, page 168. It says, The sword of justice was unsheathed, and the wrath of God against iniquity rested upon man's substitute, Jesus Christ, the only begotten of the Father. In the last meeting this morning, I talked about Exodus 34 and about the character of God. And I showed from the Bible that biblically speaking, it's very clear that the character of the one who is up there is a, is a blend, right? It's a blend of mercy and graciousness and goodness, full of goodness and truth and forgiveness. And yet at the end of Exodus 34 verse 7, it also says that part of his character is his justice. And even though he forgives, it also says, yet he will by no means clear the guilty. But he visits. He does punish sin. This is part of the character of God. And I tried to show uh, this morning that whether it's God's mercy, the manifestation of his mercy, or whether it's a manifestation of his justice, all of it is ultimately rooted in his love. That everything God does is motivated by love. He is a God of love, and yet justice is part of his character. It's very clear. And as I put the pieces together from Desire of Ages, from Zechariah 13:7, from Matthew 26, uh, what I found, and it just became louder and louder and louder as I read these different quotations, was that in, as Jesus approached Gethsemane, and then as he entered the garden, he began to experience within his soul the, the awful, incomprehensible reality of God's and his own, really, because the Father and the Son are united, their own attribute of perfect justice against sin. It's hard for us to fathom it, to really understand it, but this is what began to happen. Let's go back to Matthew 26. And this has never happened completely in all of human history. All throughout history, whenever God's justice 
has been manifested, there has never, ever, ever been a time, except for once, in the Garden of Gethsemane and on the cross, when the attribute of God's justice, of His character, which is His justice, has fully been manifested at one time, in one place, toward one individual, toward Jesus Himself in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's never happened, ever. And it's, uh, you know, we're on holy ground to try to understand this. It's, it's a blending of mercy and justice in a powerful way. Why was Jesus there in the first place? Because of His mercy and because of His love. But what was happening in His heart? He was experiencing God's justice. And the, the conflict within Him was... Uh, incomprehensible to man. Verse 36 says, Then cometh Jesus with them into a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go and pray yonder. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and very heavy. This heaviness was in his heart. He was experiencing it like never before. Verse 38 says, Then he said to them, My soul, this was happening at the level of his soul, is exceeding sorrowful even to death. Tarry here and watch with me. As he got to the entrance of the garden, he, he left most of, the, of his disciples, eight of them, just inside the gate. And then he took Peter and James and John farther in, and then he left them. He said, Pray for me. Pray for me. And then he went farther in to the inner recesses by himself because he didn't even want his disciples to see the struggle that was going on. Verse 39 says, He went a little farther and he fell upon his, his face. In all the pictures I've ever seen of Jesus suffering in the garden, I've never seen a picture of him on his face. Most of the time you'll see him kneeling against a rock, his, you know, his hand is on the rock or... There's an angel behind him, but you never see him face down. But that's what the Bible says, that he was all the way down on the ground with his face practically in the dirt. It says he fell on his face and he prayed. And humans didn't even hear this prayer. Only his father and the angels. And it wasn't long after this until all the disciples were sound asleep. And you just picture this scene, the Gethsemane man, there by himself, on his face, alone in the garden. If this hadn't been recorded, we would have never known that Jesus pray, prayed that prayer, that he was going through that agony. And it was because of the garden, what happened in the Garden of Eden, that now Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he prayed a prayer. This prayer came up as the angels were watching and demons were watching. And he prayed this prayer, and the first word isn't even a word. It's just a, a letter. It's just a groan. Oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. A prayer between a father and a son in the garden. Now, when you read this in the Desire of Ages, it just, it spoke to me so powerfully. And what I saw, and I'll read you a couple more quotations. What's really happening in Gethsemane 
as Jesus is praying this prayer, is this unbelievable combination of, of infinite mercy and tenderness and, and compassion for you and for me. And yet combined with that is, uh, is perfect, infinite, holy justice that is being directed against sin. And it also describes in Desire of Ages that uh, another dimension to all this, because of all this, the Father's beams of light and love were being separated from His Son. Now, today what's happening is that many people will read some of these quotations and they will interpret, and I'm just going to be very honest with you, they interpret words like wrath and justice to mean entirely that God is just withdrawing himself. And as I read this in the, in the Bible and in the Desire of Ages, it's very clear to me that there is certainly a dimension where sin is separating the Father and the Son. And there is a separation going on, no doubt about it. And that was part of the pain. But that's not the entire story. It's not just a separation that's going on. There is also a sword that has woken up that the Scripture says is falling against God's shepherd. It is the justice of God against sin that is part of this process. And it's something that we can't understand, that we can't fully understand, but it's very much, it's very real. And let me read a couple of other quotations from Desire of Ages. It says here that as a man, in human form, as he suffered in the garden, as man, he must endure the wrath of God against transgression. Here's another quote from page 687. And this one is really powerful. It says, The sins of men weighed heavily upon Christ, and the sense of God's wrath against sin was crushing out his life. Now, that's pretty clear. The sense of God's wrath against sin was crushing out his life. There's another quote I don't have it in front of me where uh, the spirit of prophecy says that God's hatred of sin is intense and overwhelming. We cannot understand how, how a holy, loving God can hate sin so passionately and want to get rid of it, but He does. And all throughout human history, from Adam all the way to the end, sin has been building upon sin. Sin, sin, sin has just been accumulating in this world. And there is a a very real and powerful dimension of God's character where he is against that sin. He hates it. And one of these days, he's going to destroy it. And yet that hatred of sin, rooted in his love, because he wants to get rid of it, has never, ever, ever been fully manifested in all of human history. Justice has never fallen upon sin completely yet, except one time, and it was in Gethsemane. It was in Gethsemane and on the cross. Um, I mentioned 
a little bit about my story. I have a book that I finally wrote. It took me a while to finally get it together, but it's called From Hollywood to Heaven, and it describes my background and my story. It's amazing that I'm here right now. It's amazing that you're here listening to me talk. Uh, 30 years ago or 31 years ago, I was the last person that anybody would ever expect would be a Christian or a minister or writing books or talking to people about Jesus. I mean, my crowd was the wild crowd. Uh, my family is Jewish, but we were not religious at all. Totally unreligious, very secular, like sadly a lot of Jewish people are today, just secular Jews. That's the way we were. Uh, we never went to the synagogue. My brother was bar mitzvahed when he was uh, 12, but I never was. My dad walked up to me one day and said, Steve, do you want to be bar mitzvahed? He said, take it or leave it. And, you know, I thought about the bowling games I'd miss, the basketball games I'd miss, and I just thought, I really don't want to spend the time going to the synagogue and learning to say Hebrew words. And so I just said, I'll pass, thank you, and that was it. My brother did go through the preparation for being bar mitzvah, and I remember being in the synagogue. One of the few times I, I was ever there was at his bar mitzvah. Uh, it's amazing, actually, the picture of my brother's bar mitzvah is going to be on the History Channel sometime in the next couple of months. Uh, this totally just, my mind just went there, but I was, uh, received a phone call last year from a producer who is working on a documentary about the end of the world. And he found out about me and about our ministry, and so he called me up on my cell phone. He said, are you still in Fresno? I said, yes, because we knew each other a little bit. And he said, I'm doing a documentary for the History Channel, one hour on various theories about the end of the world. Uh, one section's going to be on how an asteroid might end the world. One of them might be on a virus uh, just wiping out mankind. Another one is going to be on the possibility of nuclear war, some terrorist pushing a button and the planet just being decimated. And he said, the last section of my one-hour documentary, I want it to be on the possibility of divine intervention, that, uh, that God is going to end the world, and that the Bible's true. And he, he told me, he said, we were considering John Hagee for that part, but uh, we'd like to have you do it. Would you like to do it? When I heard that, you know, there's some things you don't have to pray a lot about. And I said, you got it. So he came up and he filmed us. He filmed my crew. He actually went up to our house up in Auburn before we sold it and moved to Washington. And he filmed us up there. He filmed my little boy. I was carrying him up from the garden. And the, the camera's on him. And I said, Seth, what's going to happen at the end of the world? And he said, Jesus is going to come and burn up the world by fire. <laughs> and at that time, Seth was only three. And he said, and then he's going to make a brand new world. And they caught that all on camera. And I emailed the producer, Jan uh, Wellman, and I said, is that going to be on the clip? I didn't know what, what clippings he was going to take. And he said, you, you better believe it. That was brilliant. <laughs> so my little boy is going to be on the History Channel. We're waiting for the date. I emailed him a couple days ago. He said, stand by. You know, it's coming. Just next couple months, we'll send it right to you. And as soon as we know, we'll send it out on our uh, email database. Uh, so if you want to sign up for whitehorsemedia.com, just go there and give, it, give us your email address, and we'll give you the date, and you can watch it. And we believe, if we've got 12 minutes at the end of that program, 12 whole minutes to talk about Armageddon, the second coming, the end of the world, what the Bible says, and we just feel it's a big providential opportunity. Amazing. We're very thankful for that. So let's see, anyway, um, where was I going with that? Oh, yeah, one of the pictures that they took to put on the screen there is the picture of my brother's bar mitzvah. My dad, my mom, me, I was there. One of the rare times everyone in the synagogue, my little sister Kathy, and uh, they'll show that. Um, loving family, but no real spirituality at all. That's the way I grew up. 
Uh, as a teenager surrounded by Hollywood, it didn't take me long to get into the wrong crowd. I started smoking pot when I was 14 years old and smoked it for almost every day for six years. Went from drug to drug to drug, started taking harder drugs, started uh, using cocaine and even LSD, um, angel dust. Um, I'm glad that meth wasn't around back then or I would probably have been taking it. Somehow I survived my teenage years, whole long story. Now when I was 20 years old, a whole lot of things happened and somebody started telling me about Jesus Christ. A couple people just witnessed to me out of the blue. One day I turned on the TV set, just looking for who knows what one Sunday morning, wasn't looking for anything in particular, and there was a friendly face looking at me, and he said, hello, friend, and he had his Bible open, welcome to It Is Written Television. <laughs> there I was sitting in uh, Studio City, California at my dad's house, probably high on marijuana, didn't have any Christian friends at all. And there's George Vandeman talking to me about the Sabbath. I only watched his program one time. And he, uh, he, at the end of the program, an 800 number flashed on the screen, and he held up a little book called A Day to Remember, and he looked right at me. And he said, friend, call me up, and I'll send you this book. And there was that 800 number, and I felt this inner compulsion, Steve Wahlberg, go to the phone call that man and so I did and a few days later the book came in the mail I sat down and read it in one sitting and at the back of the book it said come visit a Seventh-day Adventist church sometime and say hello and I looked at that and I thought what in the world Seventh-day Adventist what is a Seventh-day Adventist and then I, I remembered I was thinking where have I heard that name before one time this hazy memory came up into my brain and I remember about three months earlier I was in a health food store in Northridge I was going to school at Cal State Northridge, my third year of college, studying marketing, and I walked into this health food store with a buddy of mine, and uh, I was buying the, the food, and it's, it's strange that even while I was smoking pot and snorting cocaine, that we went to health food stores to buy avocado sprout sandwiches and drink <laughs> smoothies. I think the Lord was preparing my brain to understand some kind of Bible truth. And so I was interested in health, and as I was buying my food, this uh, my friend was talking to this man that was spraying the vegetables in the produce area, spraying down the vegetables. And as we were walking out of the store, this friend of mine said to me, he said, you know that man that was spraying the vegetables? He said, that man is a Seventh-day Adventist. And I said, so? No big deal. I mean, it meant absolutely nothing. Three months later, I'm reading George Vandeman's book. At the back of the book, it says, come visit a Seventh-day Adventist church sometime and say hello. And I thought, there's that man, Seventh-day Adventist. Where? Oh, yeah, the man at the health food store watering the vegetables. So I, I got in my car, drove out to Northridge, walked into the market, looked around, and lo and behold, there he was standing over by the smoothie bar. And I walked up to him, and I reached out my hand, and I said, hi, my name is uh, Steve. Could I go to church with you some Saturday? <laughs> now, what would you say <laughs> if somebody walked up to you and wanted to go to church? It's a no-brainer. So I, he said, uh, sure. So he brought me to the Canoga Park Seventh-day Adventist Church. And after the first couple of times being there, I met the pastor, whose name was Pastor J.B. Church. Does that name ring a bell to anybody? Well, he moved back to Loma Linda and just died not too long ago, had a big swap meet ministry, uh, some San Bernardino swap meet, I think, and he was known as the swap meet pastor, J.B. Church. Well, he was pastoring in Canoga Park at that time, and he brought me into his office, sat me down, 
He said, how'd you get here? Who are you? And I told him, and then he uh, looked on his bookshelf, and he grabbed a copy of a book called The Desire of Ages, and he handed it to me, and he said, go home and read this book. And so I went back to, uh, actually, by that time, I had just moved out of my dad's place, and I was living in the dorm at Cal State Northridge with all kinds of other books I was supposed to read, statistics, economics, and it was a co-ed dorm, and the marijuana smoke went down the hallway, and the cafeteria became a disco on Saturday nights, and it was just a crazy place. I'd come into my room at night, and my roommate would have guys and girls there, and, and uh, not a very heavenly atmosphere. And uh, I had Desire of Ages, and I started reading it. And I just was gripped by this book, this story of this man named Jesus, born in Bethlehem. And I just began going through his life, chapter by chapter, miracle by miracle. And my heart started being drawn toward him. And I knew nothing, 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 nothing. I didn't know as I was reading the book that when he got to the end, he was going to die. I didn't know that. And when I finally got to chapter 74, one word, Gethsemane. I opened and I entered the garden. And I read about him swaying from the upper room to the entrance of the garden. And I read the scripture where he quoted, it is written, I will smite the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered abroad. And I read the comments in Desire of Ages and I went farther on and I got into the, into the inner recesses of the garden and I saw him kneeling down and praying his prayer to his father. Oh, my father, if it is possible, take this cup from me. And I read about the, the beams of the father's love and mercy being separated from his own son, the separation they were experiencing. And I don't know whether, because I've always been close to my dad, whether that enabled me to appreciate this more. I don't know. My dad and I have always been really, really close. We still are to this day. We talk all the time. Uh, I love my dad more than words can describe. Thank God he's a Christian now. He's uh, almost 80. He hobbles around the neighborhood memorizing Bible verses <laughs> and praying for people, praying for me. He's come out of the new age, and now he's a Christian. Praise the Lord. He, goes to the, he keeps the Sabbath, and he goes to the Presbyterian church. He's a Sabbath-keeping Presbyterian. <laughs> We've got quite a mixture in my family. Uh, anyway, because we're so close, I was looking at... at the scene in Gethsemane, Jesus suffering, him praying, Oh, Father, Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. And I looked at that, and there was a couple pictures in the book, and my mind, the Holy Spirit, made a move on me. He made a move on me in a way that I cannot describe. And I'll tell you, what reached me the most, what, what penetrated my soul, was seeing and reading these quotes about his his suffering and his mercy and his love combined with statements that say the wrath of God, the sense of God's wrath against sin was crushing out his life. And what reached me was not just justice and not just mercy. What reached me was the combination. The, the two, like the two wires, you know, when you connect them, then you've got the, the power. The combination of mercy combined with justice. Justice that would not bend. Justice that was against sin. And the sin was in God's Son. 
and God's own wrath against sin, which was in Christ. And the awesome horror of that combined with the withdrawal of God's beams of light and mercy and, and love combined with Jesus sweating great drops of blood and an angel strengthening him or he would have died right there in the garden. It was the whole thing that showed me that sin is very, very, very serious. And I was waking up. It's like, wake up and look and see what sin and justice and love and the whole thing centered in the Gethsemane man who was on his knees praying, Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. In the next meeting, I'm going to talk about that cup a little bit more from the book of Revelation. Did you know that the book of Revelation actually describes a number of cups? The cup of the wine of Babylon, that's one of the cups. There's also the cup that Jesus gave out in the upper room, which is the cup of the juice representing his blood and his mercy. But there's another cup in, in the middle of the third angel's message, right in the heart of the third angel. It says that those that get the mark of the beast in the forehead or in the hand, what does it say will happen to them? It says they will drink the wine of the wrath of God which is poured out full strength into the cup. It actually says poured out without mixture into the cup. Now what does that mean, without mixture? Without mixture of mercy, that's right. God's justice without any mercy. Never has God's justice been manifested throughout history ever without any mercy except one time in Gethsemane and on the cross. And the, what the third angel's message is trying to tell us is that if we don't receive Jesus, if we don't receive his salvation and connect with him, ultimately we are going to drink the cup ourselves at the end of time. God's justice against sin, no mercy. And I don't want to drink that cup to you. And the amazing thing is that Jesus drank it. He already drank it for you and for me in Gethsemane because he loves us. It's amazing. I don't know how he did it, but he did it. A couple more quotes and then we'll take a break. Um, when you read The Great Controversy, there's a book, there's a chapter that talks about spiritualism, the dangers of spiritualism. And I think probably all of us or most of us at least are aware of the dangers of spiritualism, right? Very, very dangerous. And when we think of spiritualism, we normally think about ghosts who impersonate dead people, right? And that's very real. I mean, it's a big danger in this world right now. And it's part of prophecy. Revelation 16, 13 talks about, 14 talks about the spirits of devils going out all around the world prior to the Battle of Armageddon. I've done a lot of research on spiritualism. And the whole, it's, it's right now, it's very big, and it's, uh, it's very real and very dangerous. But there's another aspect of spiritualism that's amazing. In The Great Controversy, page 558, this is one of the teachings of spiritualism, or the, the, uh, 
currents of spiritualism, the trends of spiritualism, the, the, um, the emphasis of spiritualism. It says here, Great Controversy 558, that love is dwelt upon as the chief attribute of God. But, I mean, we should dwell upon God's love, right? And then it says, but it is degraded to a weak sentimentalism making little distinction between good and evil. God's justice, his denunciations of sin, the requirements of his holy law are all kept out of sight. That dwelling upon the love of God that neglects his justice and neglects his law and doesn't see the seriousness of sin, that is, according to great controversy, a form of spiritualism. Because really, that's what the spirits teach anyway. They just say, hey, I'm on the other side. You know, you'll be on the other side soon. Can't wait to see you. Everything's fine. You don't have to be a Christian. You don't have to repent of sin. You don't have to worry about, about the day of judgment. Nothing. You're just, you know, see you on the other side. That's because God loves everybody. See, that's why it's connected to a teaching of spiritualism. It's an imbalanced view of the love of God that does not recognize the reality of evil or God's justice against it. Uh, one, more, one more section. Let's go to Isaiah 53, verses 6, 10, and 11. And like I said, what reached me? And some people might think, well, wow, you know, I don't know about what you're saying, Steve. Uh, how am I going to teach these things to others, is it going to really do the trick? We need to be reaching the lost with only God's mercy. And I'm all for reaching the lost. I was lost. I was as lost as lost could be. I don't know very many people that were more lost than me. I went to some of the darkest places and just did the darkest things and Praise the Lord, I'm out of that right now, and I'm in the light. And I know what, what reached me and got me out of all that. And what reached me, got me out of all that, more than anything else, was Gethsemane. And it was seeing a loving father and a loving son wrestling in agony over my sin and seeing Jesus' life being crushed out because he was experiencing in his own soul that sword, that uncompromising sword of justice against sin, which is very much a part of the true God of the Bible, of his true character, motivated by his love. It was that combination that just penetrated me. If, he would have just, if I would have read that chapter, if it would just have been God's justice, I would have gone, you know, I'm gone. <laughs> And if it would have been just mercy, 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 it wouldn't, have, it wouldn't have penetrated me. But it was mercy and justice combined. Combined. That, that sin is so serious and God hates it and he'll punish it. But his love for the sinner is so great that he'll let the punishment fall on himself. He'll drink the cup himself so that we don't have to drink it. That blend did not repel me, but it drew me. It drew me down to the foot of the cross. And when I got done with that chapter, even before I finished the book, 
I got down on my knees for the first time in my life, and I said, Lord, I said something. I don't remember exactly what I prayed, just some short prayer. Lord, I believe in you. If you'll have me, if you'll take me, forgive my sin. Take it out of my life and come into my heart and change me. And I remember, I don't remember what I prayed, but I do remember that when that prayer was done, I, all of a sudden this wave of peace just came in to my heart in a way that I've never felt anything like it before. Um, it was better than cocaine, better than marijuana, better than listening to Black Sabbath, and all the rock and roll that used to, I used to rock out to, better than uh, watching John Travolta on the dance floor night after night after night. It was better than anything. It was the sweet peace of the Holy Spirit and the love of Jesus that completely changed my life. And it's been 30 years, almost 30 years since then, and I'm still out. That revelation got me and got me out, and I'm still out. And I'm not going back. Not going back. Isaiah 53. We'll finish with this little section. And then one more quote, and then we'll pray. Oh, and I've got a quick story to tell you too. Isaiah 53, verse 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Simple verse, but it's full of power. What was it that, that caused the death of Jesus Christ? It was not just natural consequences. It wasn't just him being given up to sin in general or separation from his father in general. This verse says that the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus bore my sin and your sin inside of him in Gethsemane and on the cross. Verse 10 says, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. It was God's justice against sin that fell upon the Savior. Uh, verse 11 says, He shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. He bore your guilt. He bore my guilt. He bore our iniquities in a way that we'll never understand. And that's the heart of the plan of salvation. And if we lose that message, we've lost the heart of the gospel. We've lost the core of what can save a person, make them a Christian, and keep them a Christian. That's it. It's right there. One last quotation, and then we'll... There's a nice story. Desire of Ages... Where is that quote? Page 755. It says, The spotless Son of God hung upon the cross. Try to imagine it. His flesh lacerated with stripes. I can't imagine seeing my son on a cross. I can't imagine being on a cross. Those hands so often reached out in blessing, nailed to the wooden bars those feet so tireless on ministries of love, spiked to a tree, that royal head pierced by a crown of thorns, those quivering lips shaped to the cry of woe. 
all that he endured, the blood drops that flowed from his head, his hands, his feet, the agony that racked his frame, the unutterable anguish that filled his soul at the hiding of his father's face, speaks to each child of humanity, speaks to you, and it says, it is for you that the Son of God consents to bear this burden of guilt. It is for you that he spoils the domain of death. It is for you that he opens the gates of paradise. He who stilled the angry waves and walked the foam-capped billows, who made devils tremble and disease flee, who opened blind eyes and called forth the dead to life, offers himself upon the cross as a sacrifice. And all of this from love for you. Last line. He, the sin bearer, endures the wrath of divine justice and for your sake becomes sin itself. That's amazing. That's what reached me. That's why I'm a Christian. I heard a story about a a doctor in uh, Chicago named Dr. Leo Winters. And one night at 2 in the morning, his phone rang. And he reached over and answered the phone. This is Dr. Winters. And it was a voice from the hospital. And the voice said, Dr. Winters, there's been a terrible accident. There's been a boy critically injured. And your hands are the only hands that can save him. He's a surgeon. And he said, you've got to come to the hospital right away. So Dr. Winters uh, hung up the phone, got dressed, told his wife, I've got to go, and he raced to his car, and he started driving through the streets of Chicago at 2 o'clock in the morning as fast as he could to get to the hospital. Now, he had a quick decision to make that the fastest way would be to, was to go through a very dangerous neighborhood, but he felt like it was worth it. He had to do it, so he did it. He went through that neighborhood, and as he was stopped at a stoplight, getting ready to go, all of a sudden, his car door on the right side, the passenger side opened up and a man jumped into his car with a flannel shirt on and a gray hat on and this man jumped in and grabbed him and said, I need your car. I need your car. And Dr. Winnes said, wait, you don't understand. And the man just threw him out of the car and drove away. Dr. Winters uh, looked around for a phone for 45 minutes, finally found one, called a, t- a taxi and they picked him up and raced him to the hospital. When he got there, he ran out of the, out of the cab down through one of the hallways to the nurse's station, and she just looked at him and shook her head and said, it's too late. The boy just died. Where were you? And he didn't even explain. And then the nurse said, why don't you go down to the chapel? The boy's father is in the chapel. Maybe you can say something to him. So Dr. Winters went down, just with his head down, walked down, went through these double doors into the chapel and he looked on the ground and he was shocked to see a man crumpled up in tears on that ground crying and he had a gray hat on and a flannel shirt on. And that was the boy's dad. The boy's father. And that man had no idea what he was doing when he broke into that car and grabbed that doctor and pushed him out so he could get to the hospital fast 
to be with his son, he had no idea that he was pushing out of his own car the, the only man in the city of Chicago that had the hands that were able to save his son's life. And as I think about Jesus and what he went through in Gethsemane and on the cross, that powerful blend of justice and mercy and love and suffering and all of that because of the horror of our sin. I just can't help but think to myself, and here's my appeal to you, don't push out of your life the only person in the entire universe that has the hands, the nail-scarred hands that are able to save your soul for eternity. Don't push him out. Let him come in. Let him come in and change your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Father, we've just talked about Jesus and you in Gethsemane and the suffering that you went through and the horror of sin and the reality of your justice and the magnitude of your mercy. And we just pray, each of us, that we will be drawn to you, that you will help us to make a choice to give up sin and to embrace you as our Savior. Please, Lord, forgive us. Clear our guilt through what Jesus did on the cross in bearing our sin. Forgive us and change us and help us to follow you every day, all the way, until you come. Please, Lord, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.